to When the Stars Disappear, a podcast that looks to scripture for guidance when our lives seem covered by darkness, leaving us feeling as if all of the beliefs that have been guiding us have disappeared and thus unable to understand life or know what to do. Our guide as we address these issues is Mark Talbot, a professor of philosophy at Wheaton College. Mark suffered a paralyzing accident when he was 17 and now is writing a four-volume series on suffering and the Christian life. The first two volumes, When the Stars Disappear and Give Me Understanding That I May Live, are available now from Crossway and wherever books are sold. Mark's conversation partner for this episode is Carl K.J. Johnson. K.J. is a retired Marine Corps officer who now directs the C.S. Lewis Institute in Chicago, where he oversees programs that foster discipleship of heart and mind, specifically the C.S. Lewis Fellows Program. Mark and KJ examine a second way in which suffering, and especially profound suffering, affects us by disrupting our stories and thus blotting out virtually all of the stars we have been relying upon to guide us on life's way. Here's their conversation. Hey Mark, at the end of the last episode, you said that we would explore the second way in which suffering affects us. That's right, KJ. Insofar as suffering affects us by tempering our happiness, which is what we were talking about as the first way last time. Right. In other words, that's by disrupting the usual mild pleasantness of our lives that we saw Paul talking about in Acts 14, 17. Insofar as suffering affects us by tempering our happiness, our suffering isn't any different than the suffering of animals. So the first way that suffering affects us is not distinctively human. Okay. But the second way it affects us is if, as we reviewed in our first episode together, human life is only meaningful within the framework of two kinds of stories, a personal story and a general story, then the second way that suffering affects us is distinctively human since it recognizes that suffering can affect us by disrupting our stories. And, of course, no animal makes sense of its life by telling itself stories. No, they don't. And I keep, I continue to find this as a helpful distinction to consider my personal story within the context of the larger story that I believe that I'm in. To use the language that I adopted in When the Stars Disappear, suffering can challenge our personal stories by making the stars by which we're guiding our personal lives disappear. Mm. And those stars are these deep and firm convictions that we're relying upon to tell us who we are, where we are in life, what we want and need, and what we plan to do. Those stars enable us, we could say, to chart our life trajectories. Getting a headache, like we talked about a couple of times ago, Mm -hmm. demonstrates how suffering can challenge our personal stories. Having a mild headache probably wouldn't affect your personal story much at all. You'd just continue doing what you were doing, um, even if you were a little bit uncomfortable. But if you were to get a full-grown migraine that landed you on your stomach in bed, that would disrupt your story's short-range trajectory concerning your plans for later today. You wouldn't be sure whether or not you'd be well enough to do those things. Mm -hmm. It could also disorient you, not merely disrupt your trajectory, but it could disorient you 
if it left you worrying that you might get another migraine, leaving you uncertain what a future, including migraines, could mean. And of course, if you got a migraine that you knew was caused by the return of a brain tumor, then that would disrupt your long-range trajectory. Definitely. You'd also be disoriented because you couldn't any, long, any longer know what the future might bring. By eclipsing the stars by which we're guided in our personal stories, suffering shows that our lives aren't entirely in our control. Yet, even the disappearance of those stars, the stars in our personal stories, may not be completely disorienting if we, like the Apostle Paul, remain convinced that God is still providentially in control and that he's guiding us along our earthly ways. Yeah, okay. I, I really like this metaphor. Um, I know you're drawing from a more nautical set of images here, but they resonate with me because, as I've mentioned before, uh, in the Marine Corps, I was a pilot. And so many of these same nautical principles apply to us, especially when we're flying at night, because there's a whole lot of scenarios where we can easily lose uh, major points of reference uh, that we need to stay in the right flight attitude, straight level and nose up instead of down. And we can very easily end up disoriented or lost or or even worse with a debilitating form of vertigo that can be really hard to recover from. Right. It seems to me that the physical situation here in, um, uh, and something like what you were dealing with with flying really does have its metaphorical equivalence right. with regard to our moral and psychological and spiritual lives. Yet here's the interesting thing. Profound suffering, in other words, suffering that overwhelms us by being so deep and disturbing that it dominates our consciousness. Profound suffering can challenge even our general stories, and thus it can shake our faith. Mm -hmm. It can prompt us to doubt what we have taken human life to mean and if it does that, then it virtually blots out all of the stars that we've been relying upon to guide us on life's way. Okay. I opened When the Stars Disappear by telling the story of the tragic suicide of one of my students. His parents had been strong Christians for many years, but their perplexity and sorrow over his struggle and suicide has made life seem so catastrophic that they can't imagine how his death could ever be part of any overwhelming victory mm. of the sort that Paul talks about in Romans 8, yeah. that Paul tells us will one day be theirs in Christ. They haven't been able to find any satisfactory answer to their question of how his suicide could be part of God being good to him and to them. So, so, in other words, some of the central claims that Paul makes in Romans 8 about how God works for the good of his Christian children, claims which they took to be stars illuminating their whole way of life, no longer strike them as true. God's apparent indifference to their son's struggle and death has left them profoundly disoriented, disrupting their ability to find a way to move forward as Christians. 
Yeah, I, I don't blame him. As the father of, of two girls, I I hardly can imagine what that sort of loss in that way would do to me and my faith. I think that would really push the boundaries and test the faith, my faith and my own general story, the Christian story. I think it often does for any of us where something like that happens. Yeah. Yet we must all subscribe to some general story about the ultimate meaning of human life that serves as the backdrop for our personal stories. These general stories, as we've seen, ultimately explain the meaning of human life either top-down or Mm bottom-up, either in terms of God having created the world for a specific reason or in terms of impersonal, natural laws that have just accidentally produced us. Suffering, when we think about it, shouldn't disturb any bottom-up story because it is then just one more product of an ultimately meaningless universe. Mm. But it can profoundly impact our belief in the Christian story and cause us as Christians to ask, would a good and all-powerful God create a world where profound suffering like this, whatever this is, where profound suffering like this takes place? When profound suffering threatens to destroy our belief in the Christian story, then in fact all of the stars of faith and hope can disappear. Yeah. So, Mark, I I know some Christians personally who seem to live lives that are just full of suffering with very little relief. It seems to come, you know, suffering upon suffering, but yet their faith is not only not shaken, but their faith seems to grow stronger. And then on the Mm -hmm. other hand, I know others who lose their faith when suffering does come. Why do so many Christians struggle with this? It's, you know, if we have this general story to inform us, why, why do we struggle? Yeah, really good question. I think it's partly because most of us are in fact inclined to believe that God won't let his Christian children suffer too much, Mm. which actually involves unreal expectations. Yeah. Next time, we'll begin to see that the full Christian story as we find it in Scripture isn't quite so simplistic. It's more nuanced. Knowing that more nuanced story can help when we encounter significant suffering— Yet even then, profound suffering can disorient us. In fact, it can shake even the most steadfast among us. Mm. Now, that was true, KJ, even for the great Reformed theologian Robert Dabney after he lost his first two sons to diphtheria near the end of 1855. I think that recounting his story may help us grasp how difficult it can be to hang on to our faith and hope when we're suffering profoundly. I, I, this is the kind of story I have in mind of suffering upon suffering, and I recall it from your book. It's a, it's a powerful, powerful story. Dabney's first great sorrow came when his second-born son, Jimmy, died after a week of excruciating suffering from diphtheria that left him mute while still capable as Dabney wrote, 
of turning his beautiful, liquid, five-year-old eyes to me and his weeping mother for help. Mm. Diphtheria, uh, it might be useful to explain, diphtheria tends to produce a membrane in the throat that quite often leads to people then having this high whistling sound when they breathe. And as that membrane closes over, they become mute and they finally suffocate to death. And that was what had happened to Jimmy. Jimmy's suffering and death prompted his father to write that he had learned rapidly in the school of anguish that week and that he was many years older than he had been just a few days before. He felt, as he put it, that the mighty wings of the angel of death were hovering over his heart's treasures with his black shadow brooding over his home. Jimmy's death drove home to Dabney, the fate stalking us all, making it fearful, as he wrote, to live and love in such a world. Yet, he could still remind himself at this point that while these were, as he wrote, and now I'm quoting him again, while these were, as he wrote, the feelings with which the natural heart regards these calamities, to the Christian faith, they wear a different aspect. Death, he wrote, is no longer a hellish minister and tyrant, but Christ's messenger. Our parting is not for long. Jimmy's despoiled and ruined body will be raised and all its ravished beauties more than repaired. And he continued then, as to the other beloved ones who I see exposed to death, to disease and death, I know that death can't touch them unless that heavenly father who orders everything for me in love and wisdom sees it best. And so he concluded, I can trust them, though tremblingly, to God's keeping and be at peace. Wow. That it seems like such an incredible stance, if not even a bit stoic, because he really does seem to be letting the general story create or define the context for his own personal story and that of his family's, even if, as it's unfolding. I think that's exactly right, KJ. Yet, when his firstborn son, Bobby, died 23 days later, wow. his feelings changed. He wrote this. When my Jimmy died, grief was pungent, but the actings of faith, the embracing of consolation, the conception of all the cheering truths which minister consolation were proportionably vivid. But when the stroke was repeated and thereby doubled with Bobby's death, I seemed to be paralyzed and stunned. I know that my loss is doubled, and I know also that the same cheering truths apply to the second as to the first. But I remain stupid, downcast, almost without hope and interest. Now, actually, Bobby's death blighted Dabney's feelings for his then youngest child. He wrote, when I turned away from Jimmy's corpse to my lovely five-month-old infant, my affections and fears seemed to flow out toward Charles, 
the five-month-old, with a strength both delicious and agonizing. He says that he never tired of folding him in his arms as the sweet substitute for his loss of Jimmy. He said he also never ceased trembling for him, lest the loss should extend to, to, to Charles also. But then he says, when Bobby was taken and our little one seemed to remain our only hope, that was his last child at this point, I was both afraid and reluctant to center my affections on him. I felt towards him a strange mixture of languor and pain, not having the heart to be happy in his caresses and not daring. This, he observed, is strange, perhaps inexplicable. Death, he said, has struck me with a dagger of ice. He has not only wounded, but benumbed. As one of Dabney's students later wrote to one of Dabney's surviving children, because there were several more, he wrote, in the many burial scenes I've witnessed, your father was about the only broken, heartbroken mourner without visible tears that I have ever seen. Before that, I had never realized the deep and well-nigh unearthly significance of a sorrow too deep for tears. At Bobby's burial, there was something in his features so pallid and deathly as he took a parting look at his dead firstborn child that some of us thought he was not long to survive. In fact, he actually lived another 40 years. Yeah, this, this is powerful. And it, it's, it's powerful, especially in seeing the effects it had and how he looked at that youngest he seems to become afraid to even love him simply for the fear of the pain of losing him too, that, that idea of being benumbed. Yes, I think that's exactly right. Yet, in losing Jimmy and Bobby, Dabney continued to hope that they were saved, renewed, and glorified by the grace of God, as he put it, even though he had lost his capacity to rejoice in that hope. But in fact, his griefs weren't over. In 1862, his favorite sister, uh, Betty, died in his arms. She was victim to a lung infection that she had caught during her labors in the Civil War. The infection emaciated her, and then it killed her, in part because, as he wrote, the effort of eating was such torture that enough nourishment could not be taken to sustain nature. His visit to Betty's deathbed had been delayed because he was bedridden for three months himself by the typhus that he had contracted while serving as a war chaplain. General Stonewall Jackson then pressed him into service as his chief of staff, but typhus returned. As he was recovering, diphtheria attacked his children again. His fourth son, five-year-old Tom, died. Not long afterwards, he wrote a poem, Tried But Comforted, expressing how immensely difficult it can be even for someone so anchored in God's word 
to remain confident of the Christian story in such circumstances. When he'd hear the doxology, he wrote, his sad heart could not in joyful praises bear its part because it could do nothing but mourn its loss and tell its woe. When he tried to picture Tom among the heavenly host singing glory to thee, eternal king, he found himself asking these things. But is not this a hope too sweet? Faith is too weak the joy to meet. Oh, might my bursting heart but see if true the blissful thought can be. If he could but once see or hear Tom among the heavenly throng, then he wrote, would my burdened heart I know with none but tears of joy or flow, but ah, when faith would strain her eyes for that blessed vision, there arise the shadows of my dreary home twixt heaven and my heart. There come that dying bed, that corpse, that beer. And when I strive that song to hear, sad memory echoes, but the wail my love to soothe could not avail. I only hear his anguished cry. I only see his glazing eye. Yeah, I know I said this before, but this is this is powerful stuff here. I can't imagine uh, that kind of loss. Uh, now, despite a life that had been filled with suffering, Dabney Dabney tried to cling to the the general biblical storyline and he really sought to find his own story within it to help him make sense of it. I think that's clear. Yet None of that made that any easier for him. And I think that might be one way we go wrong. So what can we learn from Dabney's stories and others like his? Well, one way to understand profound suffering is, in fact, to liken it to music's minor keys. Okay. When life is pleasant, it's like hearing music's major keys. But when it's unpleasant and painful, it's like hearing its minor keys. Mm. Dabney's experience underscores how life's sadder, more somber, mysterious, and ominous notes can hinder us from confidently embracing the full Christian story. His loved one's deaths struck some of life's most dissonant chords and plunged him into one of life's more, most horrifying minor keys, yeah. and that disrupted his life story in profoundly disorienting ways. As the neuroscientist Antonio Damasio has put it, he wants to say that the simple reality is that feelings of pleasure and pain, remember that they were central to the scale that I gave with right. regard to various kinds of suffering and joy. Damasio wants to say that the simple reality is that feelings of pleasure and pain or some quality in between, are the bedrock of our minds, the hmm. continuous musical line, the unstoppable humming of the most universal of melodies that only dies down when we go to sleep, a humming that turns into all-out singing when we are occupied by joy, 
or a mournful requiem when sorrow takes over. With Jimmy's death, the sad refrain of Dabney's sorrow was loud, but not yet loud enough to overwhelm his faith and hope. As he put it, the actings of faith, the embracing of consolation, and the conception of all the cheering truths which ministered consolation were proportionably vivid. But when Bobby died, his sorrow swelled to a crescendo that stunned and benumbed him, rendering him unable to be cheered and consoled by those truths, even though he was hanging on to them. But after Tom's death, the dissonances blared, riveting Dabney's thoughts on the scenes of his loss, intensifying his horror and thus raising the specter that Christianity's blissful hope might not be true. Mm. So if we use your stars metaphor, Dabney's suffering eclipsed stars of the general story that he was using to guide himself. Right. It, it seems that he maintained some measure of orientation in those early stages when he lost his first child, but with each subsequent loss, more and more stars were obscured. And it seems that the profundity and the intensity of his losses almost obliterated his ability to see anything else at that point. Am I, am I tracking or is that a good summary? That's, that's exactly right. Profound suffering as a form of elemental and persistently painful feeling yes. impacts us directly and immediately, dominating our minds and thus overwhelming our awareness of anything else. Mm. You see this regularly in the Psalms of Lament, among other places. Yeah. Its horror can almost compel us to ask, how can the Christian story be true when life includes something like this, whatever the great horror is? Dabney closed his poem, Tribe But Comforted, by affirming the need for faith and hope. Yet as he wrote to his mother after his sister's death, he said, the feeling that surely God must be our enemy since he has permitted us and our loved ones to suffer so horrendously, is all too apt to arise, even for Christians under great sorrows. Mm. Let me repeat that. This is what he learned when his life became filled with sorrows. The feeling that surely God must be our enemy, since he's permitted us and our loved ones to suffer so horrendously, is all too apt to arise even for Christians under great sorrows. Yet, yet, he wrote, it was in refutation of this feeling that the Apostle Peter wrote to tell the Christians who were suffering in Peter's day that their suffering shouldn't surprise them as though it was something strange that was happening. Peter, Dabney wrote, would remind us that for God's own children to suffer, even though it be severely, is no novel thing. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son 
whom he receives. For this road of bereavement, Dabney reminded himself and his mother, is one along which all the biblical saints traveled, yet, yet they got home safely, mm. and so may we. Yeah. Now, getting home safely may be no easy task. The final stanzas of Dabney's tribe but comforted show that he was never completely disoriented. He knew what he should believe and hope in spite of his feelings. Yet his suffering was excruciating, striking at his confidence about being able to lead the life that he knew God had called him to live. How could his heavenly father have ordered these sorrows for him in love and wisdom? Why would God, if he's perfectly good and all-powerful, allow disease to ravage and strike down those he loved, leaving him, as he said, almost without hope and interest? Answering those questions, KJ, will be our task next time as we begin to explore the degree to which we can understand in this earthly life these things. Thanks, Mark. You've, you've given me some things to think about. These are, these are not light issues. This was not a, a light and uh, easy episode, but you've given us a lot to think about, and I'm looking forward to the next time. In this episode and the last, we have explored how suffering affects us by both tempering our happiness and disrupting our stories. Profound suffering, suffering that overwhelms us and dominates our consciousness, can challenge our general stories and prompt us to doubt what we have taken human life to mean. Using Mark's metaphor, profound suffering obscures all the stars that have usually guided us. Recounting Robert Dabney's loss of his three sons to diphtheria, we saw a man who knew, as he was suffering profoundly, what he should believe and hope in spite of his feelings. It was by recalling some words of the Apostle Peter that Dabney reminded himself that Christian suffering is not anything new. For, quote, whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives, end quote. Yet Peter's readers had gotten home safely in spite of their suffering, and so may we. Mark's conversation partner for this episode has been Carl Johnson. If you found this content helpful, please let us know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Your review will help others find these discussions as well. And if you have any questions about what was discussed in this episode, email us at info at whenthestarsdisappear.com. We'll answer listeners' questions as soon as we have enough of them to make up an episode, and we'd love to answer one from you. This is Lauren Susanto on behalf of Mark and KJ, thanking you for listening to When the Stars Disappear. Mm-hmm.